0: hey this is kate welcome to two pastors take a walk and make a podcast
1: this is yolando and as always we're talking about what is astonishing us what we're thinking about and what we're preaching
0: and as is always, we are not taking a walk. We are not in person. We are still on Zoom because we're still in the middle of a global pandemic. And we feel like loving our neighbors as we love ourselves requires following the county three week stay at home measures um, because is out of control here in our region and the hospitals are filling up and or filled up mm-hmm. and this new strain that is 50% more contagious um, is here and people are tired of the um, precautions and so um, compliance is low. So. Yeah, i'm still like, amazed gosh, by the know.
1: number of people i see you know if i stop at the gas station if i go to the grocery store how many people i see without a mask it, it's just amazing to me
0: yeah i mean it it is um devastating <laughs> <laughs> just to see um how clearly we have such little um trust in one another and in our mm. ins- and in authorities and um, so it's really it's really hard uh discouraging time especially you know if you're someone who does know people who have lost people or gotten um you know really sick it's just it's really hard um but that is connected to what is astonishing you right
1: It is. A few days ago, um, a CNN reporter, Sarah Sidner, was reporting on the rise of COVID-related deaths. And uh, she was reporting from Martin Luther King Jr. Hospital in South Los Angeles, uh, which is a mostly black and brown community. And um, she is um, African-American. Her father is African-American, her mother British. Um, And the story was related to a Latino family that had lost both their mother and father to COVID. And the story was really seeking to highlight how hard COVID is hitting black and brown communities, especially those uh, with essential workers uh, in the family and uh, those who are already economically struggling. But at the end of the story, when they were doing this sort of split screen between Sarah and the person in the studio, Sarah was so, moved, that she could hardly get her words out. I mean she, she, she said later in an interview that she just couldn't stop crying. And uh, she also said in the interview that, that she was really embarrassed by it, but I found it so um, moving. I was astonished by her, her vulnerable um, humanity in a season when many have been when many have become hardened. It just reminded me of the uh, the biblical call for us to weep with those who weep and to mourn with those who mourn. And I, I think more people should just Google um, the CNN reporter, Sarah Signer, and just watch that. I think it's like a three minute piece and her response at the end. And um, like you said, when we started, we're just in a time where people just have a low level of trust. In our institutions, but we need each other right now. We need to care for one another right now. We need to have soft, soft hearts toward each other right now. So I, I'm just astonished by her, her vulnerable humanity uh, in this season.
0: Well, I mean, this week in Charlotte, uh, kids were supposed to go back in CMS on January 19th, and there were some. There was a board meeting. A school board meeting, one to listen to comments and then an emergency meeting to decide if that was gonna happen or not. And it was really interesting watching people grapple um, and make their cases. And I, I will say that um, it was interesting that m- most of the people who were arguing um, against uh, virtual learning were arguing to send kids back. And um, their their demeanor and their um, you know and, and you could just tell the sincerity of their belief is that this virus is not bad it's not hurting anybody and this and we're doing this all for nothing and so that I think is what is just so hard is you know there are some outlier people who who don't care and who who maybe know how bad it is and just really um, are indifferent um, to the communities who are being struck but there are a a, a much larger group of people who they know their own experience, <laughs> mm. um, and and that's all they know, and and they extrapolate out that what is happening to me is happening to everyone. And so since my community, you know, our my struggle is isolation, and my struggle is you know missing my daily life, um, that's everybody's struggle. And and we should go back to normal, and we're doing this for nothing. And I think that's what's so heartbreaking. Is um, just to listen to people say, you know, hey, it's not happening. Um, and, and how hard it is to know that there are people, um, you know, this was a Zoom to Facebook forum. So, um, you know, there are thousands and thousands of people watching people make these arguments, knowing like, uh, you know, m- my loved one has died of this. And not only do I carry the pain of that, but I also carry the pain of people saying not, I don't care, but it does, it didn't happen. Mm. Um, and, and that I think is just a, um, you know, I don't, it's, it's hard to know how to speak into that. Like if we won't listen and allow people um, to bear witness to the truth of their own lives, we are gonna have a really hard time being community. And of course, I mean, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, it, it it grieves me, but I can't say I'm surprised at that because, you know, for since the beginning, there have been people um, in our communities, and I mean, mostly happen to be white who are not experiencing um, the effects of systemic racism, and so their, you know, their reality is. Um, if this were happening, I would care, but it's not happening, mm. and that, um, and and it's hard to, it's hard to disrupt that, and it's hard to call people out into a truth that is so searingly terrible. <laughs> you know, people, um, you know, pe- the illusion is um, just so much easier to live with, and obviously there are very loud voices. Um, you deliberately strengthening the illusion and telling people, you know, don't listen. It's not that bad. Those people are crazy. Um, and so, you know, I mean, obviously, it's so true with COVID. Um, but it is true with so many things, and it, and it all goes back to, um, the original sin of this country, which I want to talk about when it comes to what I've been thinking about because I've been mm-hmm. thinking about that. Um, yeah.
1: So what's astonishing you?
0: Um, well, just on a totally different track. Um, so we um, have a practice at The Growth that's been really life-giving for me that every other week um, we have a gathering on Thursday morning of folks who, um, you know, we don't have, we don't have any full-time staff members, but, you know, some part-time staff members, some ministry leaders, um, it's a, it's a mixture of just, uh, ministry leaders and stakeholders in the community. Not everybody because, you know, people have jobs and so people can't always be there. Um, but it's, it's just a group of people, um, that, um, can gather together and just talk, um, logistics of how we're doing things and give feedback. And, um, and when, we went into the virtual world. You know, we just, I just press pause on those meetings. Like we do them in person. And so um, we just weren't doing them. And um, they were really focused on worship and worship was happening in such a different way um, that we didn't, so we weren't doing them. And then after a while, um, it began to feel like, well, if we hadn't been, if we hadn't resumed those meetings yet, it didn't make sense to resume them now because, you know, we've been all remote for nine months. So we should have started a lot, you know, it's just that kind of tricky thinking where you feel like, well, if I've done something wrong, like it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to fix it now, just move forward. Anyway. So I just was really um, struggling with that and kind of internally had this um, dialogue of like, oh, you should have done this three months ago, you should have done this, six months ago, you should, you know, anyway. And so finally, um, I just, I was reading something and um, I realized like, this is dumb. Like I, I can do this online. I can, I can ask these folks to gather together again, not in, you know, not in space, but in time. And so um, we have recently picked those um, meetings back up again. And um, it was really helpful. I was talking to another friend, my friend Lindsay, who um, is a pastor. Um, right now she's serving at South Park Methodist Church, but um, comes out of the non uh, the evangelical tradition. So just um, went to Gordon-Conwell. So just has a whole different um, knowledge pool to pull from than I do. Um, she went to a seminary where they taught classes in leadership. <laughs> they taught <laughs> classes in conflict resolution and organizational behavior so she just um you know she just sees things and knows things that I don't know and I and I was listening to her talk um about how if she were leading one of those meetings what she would do and I'm no dummy like um not smart enough to think of doing it this way but (laughs) smart enough to like listen when (laughs) someone else does do it and she was saying you know, sometimes those meetings can be hard because all you're doing is troubleshooting. And so you ended up coming to the table and just having a discussion about what's wrong. And that can be really demoralizing for folks. And so um, she was saying, like, it's really important, um, you know, also to name what is right, which we do fairly well. But the other thing she said that was really just helpful is she said, you know, if I were leading a meeting like that, I would just say, let's assume that we are going to be fully remote for another three to six months. Like, let's just assume that that's, what's going to happen. And then let's name like the greatest desire for this time, which is connection, right? Like we really want to figure out, okay, we know how to do in-person everything. And we just probably can't for the next three to six months. So how can we figure out, like, instead of waiting for what we used to do or mourning for what we can't do, Mm how can we just open up a space for um, dreaming and casting vision and what if thing about, well, wh- what could we do in this season, maybe that we couldn't do in, a di- in another season to help connect people to one another and to God? Like, what can we do um, to help foster those connections intentionally? And, um, you know, I think it's so interesting, like trying to lead a church I mean, it's like such a difference between what you know in your head and what what feels so real. Because in my head, I know that good leaders are not people who show up at the table with answers. (laughs) Like I know that a good leader is not somebody who shows up being like, I know what to do. You all go do it, right? But I still sort of feel this ingrained pressure that I shouldn't ask a question that I don't have an answer to, right? (laughs) That That it's my responsibility to have figured things out. Um, and I really um, just struggle against that all the time. Um, so I I went, um, we had that meeting and I um, asks, asked Lindsay's really brilliant questions. And then it was so just wonderful and astonishing in the best way to watch the people gathered around that table, people who I really know for sure have been called by God to lead at the Grove, right? And just these really wonderful um, ideas and insights and opportunities, like it was amazing. And just, um, I just was marveling at um, how sort of taking that step before you feel ready, when when you feel you know, anxious as a leader, um, to putting a question out there that you don't know the answer to. And then here is a it's a revelation that embarrassingly continues to astonish me. Like, God is in the room. This is God's church, God's people are equipped. Like, you know, so it's just really um it was a it was this beautiful moment. And and I, you know, for the first time in a long time, it just felt like, okay, I have a vision for. How we can be church in this season, and and it's not. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with waiting, but like how we can be church in this season, um, and and flourish where we are, and not just um, feel like we should be somewhere else. Um, and, and and that's really important because you know a lot of churches are are moving back to in person, and we, um, you know, very much connected to what you were just saying. You know, because we feel um, we know for sure that we are called to be a healthy and holy multi-ethnic community. Moving back to in-person right now, when the burden of um, mortality is just so un, I mean, it wouldn't be right at all. But I mean, the reality is we have some people in our community who theoretically could come back at very little risk and other people in our community who could not. And so to say like, well, we're gonna come back, catch you later, does not feel mm-hmm. loving. Um, and encouraging people to come back in person and assume a risk um, does not feel loving or faithful. So, so, you know, other churches are coming back together and we just um, are not going to gather in person um, probably for longer than other congregations. And that's not to, I mean, that's not my call. But I just am so grateful that we have some vision for these last months of being virtual and being a part um, because, you know, waiting and longing is old. <laughs> so. I was going to say
1: that's so good because, you know, most pastors that we know and um, people in churches that we know are just tired. Yeah. And there is a, a, a place of, of kind of switching off and, like you said, kind of waiting for life to return to quote unquote normal. And um, it is so powerful to have vision for the now, the vision, a vision for this season instead of just um, longing for change.
0: Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, I just think the astonishing part is both the beauty of what happened at that meeting mm-hmm. and the way that like the same stumbling block keeps tripping me up, which I just feel like if there's a question, I don't know the answer to unconsciously, instinctively, I just want to not ask that question in public because it's like, I'm trying to cover for myself instead of just being like, duh, who said you were supposed to have all the answers? Like everybody I know who thinks seriously about leadership says like, if you're, if you're a good leader, then the people sitting around your table are smarter, more talented, <laughs> more <laughs> more faithful than you are. Like that's, that is what you want, right? And that is definitely what I have. So like, why am I surprised that where my brain is locked up, other people's aren't and they're just sort of um, waiting for someone to say, hey, what else could we do? Um, yeah. So- uh, Well,
1: my takeaway from what you've just said is, um, you know, My leadership style is to gather leaders in the room and talk about the problem. Mm -hmm. My my brain wants to say, hey, do we all see the problem? Let's talk about the problem. And people just tend to get stuck there. That's not my intention, but groups just get stuck on talking about the problem and to ask those big picture vision questions often, I just never get to those, those questions. Okay. And so we never get to the, um, here's what God is saying to us right now. Here's what God is telling us to do in this season. And and well, that is so energizing and freeing.
0: Well, and I think that, you know, it's hard because you and I both are, I mean, we we come from this Presbyterian tradition that for a long time that I would say the the, MO of the dominant Presbyterian culture is never talk about the problem, right? Like the problem doesn't exist. It's (laughs) not there. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. (laughs) And so I think partly, you know, it is this very faithful thing that you have to come into a community and say, I love you. God is good. God is enough. And there's a problem and we don't have to hide from the problem. We can name the problem. You know, so, Mm -hmm. so I think that, you know, the, the reason that we go there, like you have to for... You have to. Um,
1: and that was part of our leadership development, but there's right. more after that.
0: Right, but I I mean, I also think, yeah, like we can get stuck and think like, okay, well, let's solve the problem and then we can cast vision. And the reality is like, there's always a problem. Like there's <laughs> always going to be something hugely not okay, not enough, you know, looming out there. And so, you know, the, the trick is to both name the problem and not sweep it under the rug and and really um, look at the whole truth and the hard truth and also say okay um, you know what even now what can we do and what what is God calling us to do not pretending this problem isn't here but given the limits um, that we have there is still a way to be the people of God and so so what is that? Um, and I think that both end is really, is really difficult. Um, so yeah, it's just, whatever. And that's
1: powerful, not only for the church, but this political moment that we're in, right? So there there is a problem right now in the country, there is a problem.
0: Well, and I mean, I think that was part of what we were saying last week when we were talking about Stacey Abrams, like what mm-hmm. I find so inspiring yes. about her is that it's not that she said like, okay, there's no problem. Um, but she also said, like, there is a huge problem that creates great injustice, and there are things I can do, and and sort of in the natural, in given what is always happened in the past, and what everyone says will always happen in the future, there's no point in doing what you can do, because it's not as real as the problem, but what we know is, um, you know, God is with us, and um, that the little things that we can do have great weight in the kingdom of God, so yeah. So anyway, so that was my, my just moment of real um, just uh, astonishment at God's faithfulness and presence and nearness and goodness. And, um, and it, and it's always, the, I mean, I say this a lot. I don't know if I've ever said this on the podcast, but like, it is really true for me. And and this is one thing that's been hard in this season is that I can very quickly and easily get very overwhelmed by the grove and, the church and what is against us and and what are the urgent needs both in and around our community that we, you know, should meet, but can't meet. And, you know, I can just get really overwhelmed um, by everything that isn't about the Grove when I'm alone, but when I'm, at, when I'm there, like when I'm with the people, that is when, mm. you know, it's just so much more, it's so much easier for me to walk um, in faith and not in sort of, self-doubt and so so one thing that's been hard about the season is like we're not together that's right. <laughs> so it's easy just to fall into the um fallacy of like this thing is on my back and and am I doing a good job or a bad job today carrying it on my back and mm-hmm. when you're in the community you just are, are in the presence of um the way that God is moving and you just can't you know destroys the illusion that anything is on your back and, and you really can walk in the truth that the yoke of God is easy and the burden is light and God is doing something and we get to wholeheartedly participate in it but we don't have to make it happen Mm -hmm. um we can so anyway so so that was a good thing so what are you thinking about
1: what am I thinking about I am thinking about um a book that I started reading this week I've been waiting 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 for this book since the summer um Jamar Tisby. Uh, the book is entitled How to Fight Racism, subtitled Courageous Christianity and the Journey Toward Racial Justice. Um, I've listened to uh, Jamar for a couple of years now on the past the Mic podcast and um, really, really like him. Uh, this book is, um, I'm only two chapters in, other uh, 10 chapters. It's everything I thought it would be and more. His focus is on practice. His focus is on, okay, so what are we gonna do about racism? He has written histories. He's, he's not only um, someone with an MDiv, uh, but he has, um, I think he's a, a PhD in history. And so he, he's written books about history. He's written um, other books about racism. But he says he gets asked the question all the time, well, what are we supposed to do? And that's what this book is. And one of the things I love about his way is that he casts such a wide net. I mean, he, this, this book is for the woke and the skeptic um, when it comes to racial justice. And it's centered around this concept that he calls the arc the ARC, the ARC of Racial, Racial Justice. And ARC stands for Awareness, Relationships, Commitment. Awareness, that's the head, like you just need to know some things about the history of racism in America. You just need to know some things. You need to be familiar with some concepts, uh, re- relationships. Um, he says that's the tender heart of racial justice. You need some know. You need to know some people. You need to be developing relationships with people that are different than you. And these need to be not casual relationships, but ever deepening uh, friendships. And then there's uh, the the C in arc that is a commitment to changing uh, racist structures and laws and policies. And he says, you know, we have a tendency to focus on one, maybe two of these, but we we really need to focus on all three. Maybe not um, with the same intensity all the time, but we need to have these three in mind. So I'm reading this book. I'm super excited about it. I'm even now planning to gather some leaders in our congregation to talk about, okay, we need to... um, read through this and start walking out some of the practices he recommends in the book Uh, and they are super simple Uh, and sometimes some of the things that he suggests are are deceptively simple you can read them and go well yeah of course what difference is that going to make but i think you and i have talked about this before that we need to redefine success um in this area so often we only look at you know policies and structures that are being changed but when you start to walk this way of racial justice it changes you it changes a group of people who walk this in this way and some of his suggestions are so simple but you know a faithful walk in this same direction this long faithful direction will bring transformation both heart and society. Uh, And so I'm just looking for a way uh, to get this into the hands of of our people. And um, unfortunately, even though the book is out, there's a study guide and a DVD that won't be out until April, I believe. But even now, we're going to start to plan uh, to um, focus on this book as a congregation this spring. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I just was reading an article recently on relevant about, I think the title was something like what they don't tell you about social justice or working for justice. And the, the one point that this um, woman who wrote it made is like, there's no, you know, it there, you, you have to be aware of the fact that you can't just flip a switch and then be done and move mm-hmm. on to something else. So, I mean, that idea of a commitment that is, um, if you're, if you're in it to sort of get your sticker and then move on and pick up your normal life and get your old life again, that it's not going to happen. Like you, you, um, need to say, I care about this and I care to engage with this over the long haul. And, um, you know, I, I'm not going to turn around and go back to my illusions, which I know are lies, but are more comfortable to live with. Like this truth is uncomfortable to live with and it, and it always will be. And there's no, um, you know, there's no one line that you can cross and go, great. Like, actually, my friend Elizabeth tells this amazing story that she, in her kindergarten class, uh, was the first class uh, where she's from in Fayetteville that was integrated. And she says she remembers her kindergarten teacher, like, welcoming all the students and celebrating, naming that fact and saying, from now on, everything is equal, like mm. you know, and that was just and, and I feel like we do that wow. a lot as white people is some, you know, we finally see one thing and we go like, okay, like and I'm using air quotes here, like yeah. we'll give you that. But <laughs> after that, everything is equal. That's right. <laughs> so this idea of saying, like, no, like we're heading somewhere, somewhere that's a lot better than equal.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> and um, the journey is not about you I mean, obviously, like, it's not that we're going to center whiteness in it, but to understand that it's not about saying like, okay, quote, we are going to give quote them what they need. It's about saying like, this system is poisoning and oppressing all of us in different ways. And I need to get rid of it, not just for the sake of My sister or my brother but for my own sake like this is Mm -hmm. self-interested work.
1: Um, Recently there was a uh, white nationalist former white nationalist uh, interviewed on I believe The Daily Show and he was saying that um, one of the reasons the work of racial justice is so challenging right now is because if you are a white nationalist your message to the country is easy the mm-hmm. message is, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to change. When those people over there tell you to do something different, no, you don't have to do anything different. Just stay the way you are. You're not racist. The country isn't racist. If yeah. there was any race, racism, that's all in the past. It right. says that message is easy, and a lot of people are buying it.
0: Right. Well, the work and
1: of that, racial justice is, it's a harder message because it says there is work and not only work, yeah. but it's for the long haul.
0: Well, and I think, you know, in the sermon last week, that I, I said this and I, I mean, I really believe it, that I think, you know, lies are simple and that's what makes them mm-hmm. powerful. And truth is, you know, all truth is God's truth. So truth is multifaceted and truth is, you know, sort of, we can get a glimpse out of it, but we're walking towards it. But the idea that we'll ever fully live into it is, I mean, we know, like we know that we won't, but a lie with brute force can be imposed on ourselves and other people. And so, yeah, lies are easy. And then and, and I think like, not just, you know not just in the realm of um, justice, Uh, but also just you know i think this is what jesus's continual battle against say the pharisees and sadducees were is that he you know they kept saying like well you don't um you don't honor the law you're a lawbreaker and he was saying like i'm not what i'm a custom breaker and some customs come from law the law and some customs have replaced the law and like just the the truth um, of God breaking into the world is more complicated than a list of rules that you can check off um, and a you know and a process whereby you can correct it it's just not that simple but but the simplicity of lies are their power right even if a lie is ugly if it's simple people will be drawn to it and even if the truth is beautiful, if it's complicated, people will shy away from
1: it, so. Well, here's a beautiful truth. Love your neighbor, right? Mm -hmm. But the living, (laughs) living that out, it's complicated.
0: Right, but if somebody says to you, okay, here are seven things to do, and seven (laughs) things never to do. And that's how you love your neighbor. Well, that's simple. And you're like, okay, well, at least I can attempt that instead Mm -hmm. of having to walk into every day and carry the responsibility for myself of figuring out how to be faithful, that's scary. And so, you know, we want to give that away. And I think, or we want to like figure it out so that we can go on autopilot. And, you know, the point Mm -hmm. of a revelation is to draw us closer to our need to be in continual relationship with God. So God doesn't want to say, let me drop 18 rules on a stone tablet out of the sky. So then you can just carry on your own way. And never." you know, no, like God, it's God's desire to be intimately incarnate with every single one of us. And so the idea that we have truths that will require us to continually turn to God to help us interpret them, that's not a fault of the system. That is part of the design. Um, so, yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, and it leads me directly to what I've been thinking about this week, um, which is a real stumbling block. Um, I, I have for years heard um, people talk about slavery as America's original sin. I, I mean, and like since I was a child and I, and I have, um, I've never um, been offended by that idea. But as I grow and learn, um, like it, it, I understand it as a deeper and deeper truth. Like, I think that when that was introduced to me and and I heard someone talking about it, maybe even middle school or high school, like it it felt like a metaphor, Hmm. um, or it felt like someone was saying like, well, here's the first bad thing that (laughs) happened here. And we're still, you know, and I and I think it's so interesting um, and frankly, theologically, um, the concept of original sin was something that I always um, struggled with. Um, so, uh, and, and in, in these past couple of days, I've just been thinking a lot about that because I see so much pushback within um, the white evangelical community against, um, you know, this, the, the people um, centering their illusions and saying like you you are basing your life around these ideas or around these practices and they're not they're just not true um, and people sort of bringing into the light these are the ways that laws and systems are based on racist thought that continue to um, take their pounds of flesh even now to this day and so what so many white evangelicals want to believe is like, hey, slavery's over, hey, King marched, like, (laughs) hey, you know, 50 years ago, black kids and white kids were learning together in public schools. So whatever problems um, people of color have, that's on them, not on me, because everything's fair now. (laughs) And so, um, and, and to get people to understand, I mean, and just a lot of people really and sincerely believe it in the same way that they show up at these school board meetings and say like, Hey, the only problem in my neighborhood is that people are going stir crazy. So let's send the kids back to school. Like my reality and my understanding of reality is true. And, and anybody who comes in here and forces me to reconsider my understanding of reality is a thief and a liar. And I hate them and I want them to shut up. Right. Like that's just um, the posture. And so I was, I was thinking about that a lot and just like how you try to explain to people like, no, I mean, to your point, like the lie is simple. So how do you explain to somebody like, okay, well, here's the practice of redlining and here's how it's still having effect today. And here's the policy decision to make schools funding be connected to property values. And here's how that, you know, and here's the policy decision about privatizing prisons. And here's how that is connected to this. And here, you know, all of these um, penal codes and sentencing codes. And here's how they are still having effect today. Like all of these, um, true, um, systems and realities that, but they are complicated and they're much more complicated than people just saying, I don't see color. I have love for everyone in my heart. I never owned a slave and I never discriminated against anybody. So therefore racism has nothing to do with me. And, um, and I was thinking that that idea, especially for white evangelicals, um, you know, part of the the culture um, is is an understanding of original sin. Like original sin is a doctrine that you have to um, you have to accept, you have to espouse, you have to you know the idea that Eve ate the apple, and that's why we are all responsible even though we didn't eat the apple, but that also doesn't mean it's all Eve's fault. It's my fault too. I mean, like that idea of original sin is something that has um, pride of place in evangelical culture. And it just thinks like, it would be really interesting to um, to write about, to think about, to learn about, to talk about like, hey, if you understand the concept of original sin theologically,
1: mm-hmm. then
0: you already have a framework whereby you can understand sociologically The concept of slavery as an original sin and how it affects you, and how you know, having love for Jesus in your heart, um, you know, just as Paul said, like, should I send more so grace can abound more? Like, no, (laughs) like, it's not to say, like, well, I am who I am, it is what it is, Jesus can fix it, but until then, I'm just going to drink a margarita. Like, that's not the Christian life that we are not, um, you know, we're not intimidated by sin. We are not controlled by sin, but we also are not um, indifferent to sin. So Mm -hmm. that is what I've been thinking about. Well,
1: as you were um, talking, it's like original sin. That's not something we've talked about on this podcast before. But I asked myself, well, what do I think about original sin? And three things came to mind. First of all, um, that sin taints everything. It's, it's what we, we believe that as Presbyterians, that yeah. that there's no part, it's not that we are bad, but there's no part of us that isn't somehow tainted by sin. Mm-hmm. And when I hear America's original sin, I hear everything is tainted by this. Doesn't mean the country is bad, but it's mm-hmm. been tainted. Um second original sin it, it's passed on it's like what you're saying about Eve even though we didn't I mean we bear some responsibility but sin is passed on um, as a matter of fact not only is it passed on uh, post Eden post Adam and Eve it gets worse right there, there's a there's a snowball uh, effect that that takes place when it comes to sin in the Bible and third, it's it's a it's a force. It's a strong force that is spiritual but has real world implications and real world effect. And uh, yeah, I, I remember hearing um, at least in my memory, the first time I heard America's original sin, I was in seminary. Mm-hmm. I was at a conference in Uh, urban ministry conference in chicago and it was jim wallace of sojourners yeah and as a matter of fact he had written a book called racism america's original sin Mm -hmm. and um i remember as a theological student that's right this white man's got something he's absolutely right
0: yeah, it was really interesting. This week, um, I was listening to an interview on NPR. Uh, somebody was interviewing the president of Uganda because Uganda is in the middle of an election right now too. Is that and- Bobby Wine. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I couldn't remember his name, but you got it. Yeah. Um, and and in Uganda, I mean, I guess sort of the premise of the article was like, if you think the election in America is, you know, yeah,
1: just he's, he's something.
0: <laughs> um I, no, actually, I think Bobby Wine is the opposition leader. So Bobby the Wine is the one who's running against it. I don't know. I don't think I, so. Well, um, the the man who is the other candidate just gets perpetually arrested again and again yes. by the president. Mm-hmm. And, and so somebody was interviewing the president and just being like, hey, this is not a democracy. Like if you're jailing your opponent and if every time your opponent tries to have a campaign event, you're jailing them like you are then um, making democracy illegal. And and it was very interesting because the president of Uganda first said, I'm not jailing him because he's my opponent. I'm jailing him because he is inciting um, terrorism. And, it, and I'm not jailing his supporters because they're supporting him. I'm jailing them because they're terrorists. And so you can't being in a democracy does not give you the freedom to be a terrorist. And, you know, because the guy was saying, like, these people you're arresting, like, they're, you know, sellers in the marketplaces and their teachers and their students and whatever. And he was like, well, they can be all of those things and a terrorist, too. So that was very interesting. But then the next thing he said was, I mean, was, and he was like, in America, you can afford to be lenient with people who riot and lenient with people who um, protest. But in Uganda, if people are protesting and they not, and they like damage a police station or burn down a police station, that's the only one we have. And we have to crack down hard, but in America you have this infrastructure and you have it because for 300 years, you enslaved black people. And it was so interesting. I mean, A, I was like, I mean, he's not wrong. (laughs) I mean, he isn't wrong. And it was really interesting. To have him say what is true which is just like, it's kind of rich. I mean, putting the last election cycle completely aside, it's kind of rich for Americans to go into any part of the world and say, like, hey, hey, let us tell you how to do some democracy, given not only our history of voter disenfranchisement, but our present and if certain state legislatures have their way. Looking at you, Georgia. Our future <laughs> in broader disenfranchisement. So, um, you. Know, but it's really interesting to say, like, we can't see it. Mm-hmm. We can't see the connection between, um, the original sin of America and our current reality. Both, yeah. but but everybody else can see it. Like, it's the yes. beam in our eye that mm-hmm. everyone else can see. And and that isn't to set, suggest that what's happening in Uganda is a speck or not serious. Like, it is serious. And it's not to suggest that I think, um, that that um you know god is mysterious and so i mean there's just much, so much that is astonishing about how gracious god has been and all the good that there is in this country and all the sincerity sincere love of neighbor and commitment to democratic ideals that that is here and i and i see that and i you know i'm not saying like to your point, like, I'm not saying everything about this country is bad, because that's just not true, or that this is the worst country in the world, like, that's just not true. But I'm also saying, we don't understand that our original sin, not only is very much present, but, you know, even if they were, Congress was to pass extensive reparations at the very next Senate, like there's no point where you'd be like, okay, we did this. Now we're done. We're turning the page and we never have to think about this or talk about this or feel about this ever again. That day will never come Uh, well on this side of eternity. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think like having a sober understanding of like for Christians, we have a lifelong battle with sin and it doesn't define us and it doesn't destroy us but we can't ever be naive enough to think like sin is never going to be a problem for me again right. because the second we think that
1: the noose you're already in trouble shackles
0: are on right? <laughs> That's right but if we have a sober humble healthy understanding of both the reality of sin our susceptibility to it and God's grace and the and the means of grace that we can employ, then we can be like people in recovery, right? We can live mm-hmm. healthy, full, and beautiful lives that acknowledge our reality instead of small lives where we spend all of our time and energy denying our reality. So I'm thinking about- oh, that's good. All of that. Yeah. Um,
1: and I think well, you're right, Bobby Wine is the opposition leader.
0: I think so, you're just because right? I remember- wow. hit, the opposition leader's name was easy to say. And he's like a former actor or singer or entertainer mm-hmm. in some way. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the man who is currently the president of Uganda and shamefully, I don't know what, but his name is um, more, more traditional in U- Ugandan mm-hmm. culture. And so it, it's just harder for me to remember it and say it. But um, yeah, anyway, that's, it's, it's hard. It's tough. Um, what are you preaching about this week?
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know What? I am taking another Sunday off, and my dear friend and colleague, Kate Murphy, is preaching, uh, bringing the word to our congregation once again. And um, I am uh, going to rest. I'm going to do some light editing of our worship video. And um, yeah, I'm going to take some Sabbath.
0: Good. good, good. I'm glad. Um, Well, we are doing um, the second part of our mission statement, inviting all to serve. And so we are just looking at what does it mean to serve?
1: And it's perfect Um, for this weekend.
0: It is, although I feel a little uncomfortable. And I was going to talk about this earlier. I did not explicitly reference uh, Reverend Dr. King anywhere in our service. Um, And I feel um, very... You know, I, I a I feel as comfortable as I think anyone can feel that the um, themes and truths and message of our service are very much in line with the ministry of Dr. King, not the sanitized version, but the real <laughs> ministry of Dr. <laughs> King. And I, and I feel that just because I, you know, I think that King was... Um, a messenger of the gospel in in word and deed. And so I think like every week um, to the extent that, you know, everything that's good about, about having a day to honor this man and his legacy is about saying, you know, I mean, obviously in the secular world, just looking at, at changes that were sparked, but um, in the church world to say, look at the gospel, like, look at Jesus. And I, and I feel like of all people, King, you know, that's what he sincerely did Um, and and struggled with it as we all do as, as preachers and pastors and leaders with big egos. But like, you know, I mean, I, I read his, uh, like his drum major sermon and just think like um, it was so excerpts. I've not read the whole thing recently, but excerpts of it, I was looking at this weekend and just this idea of like wanting to really wrestle with our need to be out in front and wrestle Mm -hmm. with our need to be you know, visible and in control and honored and have everyone looking to us is just such a downfall of humanity in general. And and needing that um, can really limit the way the Holy Spirit can use us for God's glory. Um, anyway, I, I do think that um, what can happen, especially in white churches, is that this Sunday becomes like the worst kind of tokenism and mm-hmm. people... Mm-hmm. Mm. don't wrestle with the reality of, you know, like Jesus, like King did and said things that absolutely got him assassinated just as Jesus did. Um, and, you know, he did not walk around just saying like, let's love everybody. Else. Like only <laughs> hate can't drive out hate only love can't, like if he had just walked around and said nothing but that, you know, he would probably still be alive as a 90 year old man. And, um, our schools would probably still be segregated right mm-hmm. like he named um the brokenness of american culture and and called it out in ways N- that not
1: only named it but sought to do something about correct. it correct right? correct
0: yeah um but so i think it's you know it'll be really interesting for me you know you gotta um think given all of the calls for unity that are going around church world right now. Like, let's not be divisive. Let's just do unity. I'm like, dude, you cannot stand up on Sunday and preach Kings. I have a dream speech. If what you've been saying all before this is, well, let's just, you know, let's just move past that unpleasantness. Let's not dwell on it. Thankfully, nothing happened. So there's nothing, there's no more reason to to look at this or understand this or be troubled by this. Like, let's just sweep it away and turn the page and move on. Like, there's no way that King would have done that, um,
1: so. Yeah, when I was in high school back in the day, <laughs> back in the day um, when, oh my, when cassette tapes were popular <laughs> and I remember going into, and, and I was a really, really new Christian, like genuinely new to the faith. I remember going um, into one music store in Memphis, Tennessee, and I noticed that among all of the uh, vinyl (laughs) records and cassette tapes, they had recordings of Martin Luther King Jr's sermons, not the political speeches that we all know, but his sermons. And so I started buying those and listening to those and for me, the fascinating thing is that this figure, this man was essentially a gospel preacher. Mm-hmm. But what he did in the pulpit, sin is real, mm-hmm. repent. And there is the grace of God to heal and transform. And mm-hmm. what he did in um, uh, his, his political social life was to say to the country, sin is real. Not only racism, but poverty. Mm -hmm. Not only racism and poverty, but- um,
0: The military industrial complex.
1: Yes, which really got him in trouble as well, right? And that's real, repent. And there is the grace of God to heal and transform. Mm -hmm. And he essentially took what he was saying in the pulpit into the streets and it was powerful and transformative.
0: And who does that remind me of? Uh, you know, and I.
1: <laughs> well, right. If you. Right, so, anyone reading the gospel narratives, right? So, there's that place where Jesus preaches his first sermon, right? He reads from Isaiah uh, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, good news to the poor, you know, deliverance for the oppressed. And he closes the book and says, today, this is, you know, accomplished in your hearing, and, you know, they want to throw them off a cliff.
0: Well, because not only that, like, he says, you know, the thing about, like, there were many widows in Israel, but, oh, that's right. you know, <laughs> so, I mean, he he said, if you all think that because of your ethnicity, and because mm-hmm. of your, um, you know, your, your national identity, that God has no issues with you, and that, you know, the word of God is only going to bless and affirm you and has no word of judge, you know, if, if you think that God only has a problem with the sin of the Romans or the Samaritans, like, yeah, you don't even know your own history. And so, yeah. I mean, you know, he, he disturbed people's peace. And I think, um, you know, King did that too. I think Jeremiah Wright does that too. I mean, like the reality that people are so angry about his sermon and I'm quoting his sermon and he was not cursing God. He was speaking very um, biblically with his, you know, goddamn America sermon And mm-hmm. like, people are so offended by that. And I just want to be like, okay, fine. But like, what do you think that Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and several of the other minor prophets were saying, except they were calling God's damnation, God's judgment upon their nation. And mm-hmm. and I mean, A, we skip those parts, but B, when we read them, we're like, oh yeah, those, you know, those Israelites, they really didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> I mean, like, it's very biblical <laughs> to yeah. speak judgment, not only against your enemies, but also Against your own people. And, you know, that's what fidelity to God looks like is like, I don't want to twist the word of God to make me seem right. I want to be faithful. I was looking at a quote somebody else had this week, um, or maybe last week, a a pastor who was getting heat from another pastor for being divisive in response to um, the riots in Washington, the insurgent, whatever you want to call it, insurgency Mm -hmm. two weeks ago, a week ago, a week and a half ago. And And you know the other pastor was like, "You're being divisive. I'm disappointed in you. I'm not going to engage with you anymore." Good day. And and this pastor was like, "You know, this is what happens when you. What did he say? I mean, he didn't. He's not the first person to say it, but like when you um, conform the truth to fit your people instead Mm. of your people to fit the truth." And I'm like, "That is what happens." And and to be fair to America, that's not an American problem. That is a human problem.
1: And so, yeah. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, and you and I talked about this when Trump was elected. If you went online, there were all of these so-called, and I mean, so-called prophets saying that Trump was the fulfillment of biblical prophecy in a good way. And then um, recently, right, this past election, election cycle, they, all of these prophetic declarations about the election and Trump. And um, I wonder if any of those folks are gonna go to those biblical passages about prophesying falsely. Right, not, not that we're trying to stone anybody, right. but but the idea that, you know what, I I thought I had a word
0: And I was wrong.
1: And I was, but I was wrong.
0: Well, and I I mean, here's what I think about that. And I I actually read an article. I can't remember where, but some, an article talking just about that, like in a charismatic or Pentecostal publication where they were saying like, hey, people were wrong. And they were pointing out two things. One is a huge reason that a, a large swath of the country cannot accept the election results is because they believe these prophets.
1: That is exactly right.
0: Right. And so so they're like, well, I, it doesn't matter what any news source says. My prophet said Trump mm. would win. So if Trump isn't going to get inaugurated, what that means is the election was stolen. And the way I know that is because my prophet predicted that Trump would win. And what I think is so tragic about that is what it reveals about how our understanding is shaped by the culture, uh, how our understanding of our own faith mm. is shaped more by the culture than it is by scripture. Because if you go to scripture, you will see A, lots of discussion about the fact that false prophets are real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and who do false prophets usually line up behind? Powerful people. Mm-hmm. And you will also, if you read the scripture, you see that like rarely do the prophets say something like, rarely, not never, but rarely do the prophets say something like, in three days, X will happen. And often... It is in three days, X will happen unless you repent. Yes. Jonah, right? So it's, it is never like, let me impress you with my spooky spiritual skills and predict Mm -hmm. what's going to happen in the future. Like that's not how prophecy works. Prophecy, prophets are people who speak for God. So often what prophets do is tell the truth about how God sees people's behavior and institutions. And they're not saying explicitly things like, I mean, not never. Again, like early Isaiah, there are some direct prophecies to what? Hezekiah, was that the king? Like, don't don't worry, you know, don't worry, this army won't come against you, right? So it's not that it never happens. It's just that the majority of the time, that's not what prophets do, because If God wanted us to know the future, we would have that capacity. God sends prophets to bring the people back into relationship with God. So to say, here's how your behavior is separating you from me. Quit it and come home to me. That's what prophets do. They do not predict the future. And the fact that we have huge swaths of the church that understand themselves to be more committed to supernatural gifts have that fundamental misunderstanding of what the divine gifts of God are is just heartbreaking.
1: And false prophets, they get rich off of the people they're prophesying to. And it is still true. Some of these so-called prophets, they are just lining their pockets because people believe their false words
0: because people so desperately want those words to be true and Mm -hmm. real prophets suffer like they suffer they do Mm -hmm. not get ticker tapes i mean that's why jesus says like jerusalem jerusalem you city who murders the prophets how i long Mm -hmm. to gather you under my wings like a mother hen like the reality is people of faith continually Flock to false prophets who tell them what they want to hear, who tell them whatever they need to hear in order to get rich. And people reject God's true prophets because God's true prophets come up. I mean, like, God doesn't need to send a prophet to say to you, Hey, I love you. You're perfect. Don't change. Like, we don't need a prophet to tell us that. We need a prophet to tell us the things that we cannot discern for ourselves. And so when a prophet shows up, it's usually bad news, like Ahab, being like, uh, you know, to Elijah, like, who, you know, who are you? Why are you back here, you disturber of my soul? Like, what are you doing here? Like, if we continually expect prophets to show up and tell us what we want to hear, like, we'll get them. Mm-hmm. They'll be false
1: prophets. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm.
0: I don't. We now we're just way we're we're way beyond time. <laughs> well, oh. <laughs> um,
1: but listen, this is something that the church and our society needs to talk about because the article that you read was exactly right. False prophecy is driving a lot of people into a certain political mindset that is very dangerous.
0: Well, and I think like we have false prophets within the church. And then again, this is not my concern. Like, let me be like Kermit and sip my sweet tea. It's not my concern, but as a citizen like i see a lot of politicians functioning as false prophets too like mm-hmm. like who are just saying what people want to hear in order to get elected even though they know that the lies they're peddling are actually undermining the institutions that they i think sincerely <laughs> are trying to uphold so um
1: anyway. Well, that we were talking about what you're preaching this week. I don't know know how we got on this, but it does connect with the text because, um, you know, I've had a chance to read your sermon and you do this wonderful thing in the sermon where you connect the, uh, banquet that, um, Herod was throwing, uh, with the feeding of the 5,000. And, um, we can choose to be in, in one of those, um, one of those feedings. One false, one true. One is about um, the the false power of a false king. One is about um, King Jesus and serving. And you just do a fantastic job of laying that out in a way that helps us to see um, the lie that is is being told right now in our current moment.
0: Well, and the other thing that I, I really, I do, contrary to popular opinion in my own home, often leave things out of a sermon <laughs> Yes, I know it's too long. <laughs> and the thing that I had to leave out that I really wanted, you know, I just was really intrigued with all week long. is just, you know, the contrast between King Herod and King Jesus and the way that they reign. Um, because I think like you called Herod a false king. I mean, like, and I I mean, I get that obviously, but I mean, he's a real king in he's a, a real realm, of way, right? Like he's really a king. It's just not the kingdom that will be eternal and not the kingdom we belong to. But um, but it's really interesting to, to, you know, Herod in that scene at the dinner table, when um, they tell him like what I want is John's head on the platter. And, and Matthew says like Herod didn't want to do it, mm-hmm. but he mindful of his oaths and his dinner guests, he had to do it. So, so he was a King who had to do mm-hmm. um, n- not only what he didn't think was right, but also what he didn't want to do in order because he couldn't risk losing anybody. Right. And just the contrast between that and Jesus who, um, You know, not so much in Matthew, but you know, certainly in John. After that same feeding event, like it's like I fed you. Now let me tell you, you know, let me tell you what this really means. And what does it mean that I'm not a bread dispenser? I'm the bread of life. And here's what your life in me is going to look like. And people are like, I'm out. Thanks for the bread. Peace. (laughs) And Jesus is like, I mean, he's not mad. He's not angry. He's not whatever. But he, he is not the king of the people. He is God's king. And so he has um, a resoluteness about the kind of king he's going to be that he is not um, in response to what the people want. Um, And and again, like for a human to do that, super, super dangerous. (laughs) But for God, it made flesh to do that is great. And just this contrast between Herod, who does what he doesn't want to do to be the people that he needs, to be the king that he thinks that people need him to be, so he can hang on to people. And Jesus, who just is absolutely um, has this healthy detachment of saying, "Like I'm here to be faithful to this mission, and I'm going to do it, and I'm not going to alter it in any way, um, and unless led by the Holy Spirit." Like I think that the Syrophoenician woman is a time where I think the Holy Spirit led Jesus to you know, course correct to be back in line with God's mission. But but when people are just like, I don't want to hear that. I and mean, if you keep saying that, I'm going to leave. And Jesus was like, go with God. Deuces. <laughs> well, probably not deuces. I, I don't <laughs> know. <to> do <laughs> as rude as us. But um, anyway, so, well, you've wasted another perfectly good hour <laughs> or more. <laughs> with us. We're glad. Um, thanks so much for listening. And if you want to find out more about Yolando Hinton and his ministry at Derida Presbyterian Church, D-E-R-I-T-A, Presbyterian Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, you should Google it and pop it over to their ever-changing website. And if you want to hear some of Yolando's messages, which I really recommend, um, you want to search for the Derrida Church podcast, which is on the Membean website. oddbean Podbean, dang it. I've said this before. There's a website my kids use at school called ManBeam. And I get a very confused. Podbean, website, Dorita Church Podcast. And you can listen to Yolanda's messages or you can go to the Dorita Church YouTube page and um, watch their worship videos. um, And they're great. They're great. And if you want to find out more about The Grove, you can go to thegrovecharlotte.org. Um, You can sign up for our weekly newsletter there. I don't think I say that often enough. comes out on Fridays. Mm. It's really good. Um, you can worship with us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on our Facebook live stream, or you can listen to uh, sermons from The Grove at The Grove Church Podcast, which you can find on iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. <laughs> Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.